The reading this morning is Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. If you're interested in following along with the reading, we do have some Bibles available on the resource table right outside the door over here. Feel free to grab one of those. Either while I'm reading, during the next song, really at any time. You can grab it on your way out the door if you would like. You're welcome to take it with you. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them." Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up, along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her as well as he supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years." Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged to go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with power. Of his whole kingdom, come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of the kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, 
booty and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak monstrous monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out a land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels." But rumors of the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Imagine with me for just a moment that we are at the base of a mountain that we are planning to hike. And for the most part, none of us have ever hiked this mountain before. And and we can see the peak where we're headed, at least where we think we're headed. We, We have a goal in mind, and we want to get up to a certain peak or ridge. And so we set out, and, and we trek along the way, and we get to that place that peak that we had in our sights. But we quickly realize that it is not the peak of the mountain range, but a mere ridge, and that if we really wanted to get to the peak of the range, then we would have to trek on further, that what we were seeing was in, the, in our foresight, but there are many other mountains. A day like this, it's not difficult to imagine that, the, the cloud and the, the mist and the moisture in the air, 
prevents us seeing quite as far. I mean, looking out in the distance here on a clear day, you can see mountain ranges and layers of them. Uh, Today, we just see a few hundred yards at most. But this idea of a mountain range, that we can only see an initial peak until we get there and then we see a bit more. This is what's happening in Daniel chapter 11. So it's important as we begin this chapter that we remember the big picture, not just the big picture of Daniel 11, but the big picture of Daniel as a whole or the kingdom of God as a whole. And and remembering the overarching theme and thread that runs through the book of Daniel, that God is completely sovereign. He is absolutely in control of everything. So much so that we might say he holds history in the palm of his hand. And it doesn't even take up much space. He can do with it what he wants. We've seen thus far through Daniel that God has delivered his people. He is delivering his people. And the promise is certainly there that he will continue delivering his people, whether from opposition or persecution. Even in the very end of time, we have seen God will continue delivering his children. God promises that he will actually, in the very end, raise his people from the dead. And they, along with untold millions of others, will reign with him forever in his glorious kingdom. What we have here in Daniel chapter 11 is a tapestry of history. In one sense, what's being prophesied and promised here in Daniel chapter 11 was fulfilled. A portion of it was fulfilled 400 years later, after it was prophesied. At the same time, there are aspects to Daniel chapter 11 that are promised or prophesied that it's been 2,000 years plus, and they still, it still has not come to fruition. It will, and we know it will because the short-term prophecies have come true, so we put our faith in the long-term promises and prophecies. If we think back to last week, Daniel chapter 10 Jesus, coming near to Daniel, said in verse 14, I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Jesus wasn't coming to Daniel saying, this is on the horizon. He came to Daniel saying, this is what will happen. It's why it was so devastating for Daniel. It's why he was terrified by the vision that he was having because of the difficulty that God's people were going to face in the coming years, in what we might call the near future, which was 400 years from then, and the distant future, which has still yet to happen. Another way for us to understand chapter 11 is, if you were here when we considered chapter 7 and 8 a few weeks back, chapter 11 is chapters 7 and 8 fleshed out with even more details, exact details, precise details that would soon play out as actual history. Now, where we are in the book right now at chapter 11, it's helpful for us to consider what has been going on. How can we catch ourselves up to speed in Daniel's world? Some of the Jews who had been captive in Babylon for 70 years have recently returned to Jerusalem in an attempt to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple for the purpose of worshiping God according to his commands. Daniel, an old man here at the time, did not return with some of those Jews, but he has received word back from Jerusalem. We read about this in the book of Ezra particularly chapter 4, he heard that the work was being hampered. The work on rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple was being hampered by opposition. It wasn't long after that that the work to rebuild the city and the temple stopped altogether. Daniel responds by mourning and fasting 
and praying to God about the situation. He told us in chapter 10 that he did for 21 days straight. And upon the culmination of that prayer, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, comes to see Daniel in chapter 10 to give him a little glimpse, we might say, behind the heavenly curtain into the spiritual realm. And Daniel then realizes that the real battle, the foundational battle for God's people is, to, <coughs> pardon, is taking place in this realm or in that realm, in the spiritual or heavenlies. And Daniel is terrified, as I mentioned earlier, with just this small glimpse behind the heavenly curtain. I'll try not to let that cling around on my teeth into the mic. What Daniel realized, and what we must realize, is that there are not only evil men and evil kingdoms in this physical world, but there are evil men and evil kingdoms in the spiritual realm, too. The conflicts and the wars, the evil that we witness and experience in this world, are a shadow or a type of a spiritual conflict that is going on that we may not see with our eyes. So Daniel writes, offering comfort for God's people, comfort for Christians. And he does so by means of spiritual realism. He's saying, this is what's really going on. And so he writes to encourage us in that. As we look at this chapter, which isn't short, you, you recognize that in the reading, right? Everybody wondered when I would finish. I was the main one wondering that. <laughs> I've split it into four sections for us to look at together this morning. First, verses one through four. Alexander the Great. Verses five through 20. Aggression all around. Verses 21 to 35, Antiochus added again. In verses 36 through 45, Antichrist's appointed end. The appointed end is the title. And you may have noticed throughout the reading again and again, it'll come to an end. There's an appointed end. In fact, if I sat down to write this sermon tomorrow, I might just title it, But... And this afternoon, if you have 10 minutes to spare, read through again and circle, but every time you see it, because you see the world's leaders and the kings and, and leaders of this world attempting to rule, but God, but their time was appointed to come to an end, but they were overthrown. And it is wonderfully encouraging, which is what Daniel wrote it for, to grant comfort and encouragement to us to see that God is indeed the only rightful ruler who is in control of all things. So point number one, Alexander the Great. And you may be thinking, I didn't hear anything about Alexander the Great as you read that. But if you, again, go back with me in your mind to chapter 7 and 8, where we looked at those details playing out historically, Chapter 11 matches history even more precisely than those chapters did. But when we come to the opening of this chapter, the Medo-Persian Empire, is, it, it covers Cyrus being king in the first year of Darius the Mede. Cyrus was the leader of the Persians. Cyrus is king. And it, it runs to the end of the reign of Alexander the Great. Jesus is speaking these words. He says in verse 2, The fourth one after him will be richer and more powerful than the three kings before him. We know that this, this person that Jesus is referring to was called Xerxes, and we actually read more about him in the book of Esther. And according to what Jesus is telling Daniel here, Xerxes assembled a huge army, sailed across the sea from Asia Minor to continental Europe in order to attack Greece, 
He even built a canal near Corinth so that his ships could bypass the defenses of all the opposing armies, allowing them to enter into battle with very few losses. On the way there, they fought a naval battle, a great naval battle in a place called Salamis, and Xerxes recorded a crushing victory against the Greeks. And just a few years later, he would end up being defeated by the Spartans at the famous battle of Thermopylae. Again, Jesus is speaking these words to Daniel hundreds of years before the events occurred. And Jesus is recording them. And we can understand the comfort that it must have been for God's people when the wars are happening and the conflicts are going on and they open up the word of God and say, aha, God told us this was going to happen. It's why we ought to open up the news app on our phone or the daily paper and say, aha, God told us this was going to happen. Because he's in control of all things. He holds history in the palm of his hand. So not long after the defeat by the Spartans, the Greek armies of Alexander the Great swept across the world and dominated every nation that stood in his way. Pretty close to the age of 30, Alexander the Great was the greatest ruler on the planet and had almost all other nations under his control. It's just remarkable how these things are predicted or prophesied or promised by Jesus. In in verses 3 and 4, a mighty king will arise. That's Alexander the Great who will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But he only reigns for a short time before he dies. We see in verse 4, we saw in the previous chapters, his empire was divided up between his generals. Um, Originally in the aftermath of his death, his kingdom was split into 12 portions, but this soon narrowed down to four. That is mentioned here in our text this morning as the four points on the compass. The point for us to take away regarding this reign that's happening from the time of Cyrus through Alexander the Great is that any and all power that human beings wield on this earth is temporary at best. They come and they go. They rise and they fall. Or we could say it this way. We come and we go. We rise and we fall. All that's left of these great empires that we're reading about is measly museum memorabilia. But it's not true when we're talking about the eternal, infinite, unchanging God. He created it all. And he sits enthroned, even now, ruling and reigning. Which fast forwards us to 530 B.C., picking up in verse 5. Aggression all around. Verse 5 through 20 is 355 years. From Cyrus moving forward all the way to Antiochus Epiphanes this time. Now, I'll mention this again in just a moment, but point number 3 is verses 21 through 35, which is a closer look at Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, But those verses are only 12 years. So this is a broad span, more than 350 years of history. And if you're interested in history, to that degree, this ancient history, I encourage you, open up the history book and open up Daniel chapter 11 and just be amazed at the reality of what Jesus is coming and saying to Daniel here in chapter 11. He's detailing wars between these two kingdoms. The north was Syria and the south was Egypt. One writer referred to this section of the chapter that I was reading as northern aggression and southern aggression. And I've called it aggression all around. And I suppose we could split up sides and, you know, of those who think that our civil war was the war of southern aggression versus the war of northern aggression. I'm on the it's a northern aggression war side. There's my cards on the table. The important thing for us to see is to not read into this that somehow this is talking about our civil war or our war at all. What is the the north and the south is in relation to, not even the equator, it is in relation to the beautiful land 
the promised land. That is the center of the world, according to what God is writing here. The beautiful land is the center, and all directions are determined by that. So there's war to the north, there's war to the south. I mentioned that history books match Daniel chapter 11. Now, it doesn't give all of the details of every battle. After you've read Daniel chapter 11, it feels like it does, but there's more recorded in the history books. But it charts exactly the comings and the goings and the risings and the fallings of kings and empires over a period of centuries into the future. So when, when someone says to us, how can you say that the Bible is 100% accurate, having been written by men? What do we say? Yes, men wrote it down. They recorded it. But just like with Daniel chapter 11, the words are coming from the breath of Jesus himself. Luke read earlier for us, 2 Timothy 3. Scripture, all Scripture, inspired by God, literally breathed out by the God of heaven. Yes, recorded by men, transcribed by men, preserved by men. But all that was by men who were under the inspiration of God, who was overseeing it all, was breathed out by God who does not lie, who does not make mistakes, who does not get anything wrong. Human beings make mistakes. Human beings get things wrong. But the Word of God is infallible, inerrant, and truthful in every single part. So this 350-year span, verses 5 through 20, there are wars and battles here. There are kings and leaders being raised up and being knocked down. Until, verse 21, Antiochus. Again, we looked at him again. Pardon, we looked at him previously. So I titled it, Antiochus added again, but he's not really added again. This is just Daniel being told in another vision, in a different way, about the same events that are going to happen. During these dozen years, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, remember he nicknamed himself Epiphanes. Here is God. considering himself divine, this man was an absolute vicious savage. One of the most cruel rulers in the history of the ancient world, especially when it comes to the people of God. He had a special hatred for them. When you see the things that he did to the people of God, It's hard to put up an argument that he hated the Jews any less than Hitler did. His aim in life was the total annihilation of God's people from the earth. Look in these verses at the way that he's described. Verse 21, he is despicable. He is dishonorable. Verse 23, he is deceitful. Verse 24, he will plunder the empire. He is a schemer. Verse 28, he is set against the holy covenant. Verse 30, he will reward those who turn their back on God. Verse 31, he will desecrate the holy temple. He will ban sacrifices to God. He will set up an idol in the holy of holies. Verse 33, he will butcher the faithful. I don't remember if I mentioned it before when we were considering Antiochus Epiphanes. His desecration and setting up an idol. He came into the temple and sacrificed a pig and set that up as the idol for people to worship. It was this kind of in-your-face offense against God and his people. And so as we read this description of 
Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. It's not striking to see how much he has in common with so many of the world leaders who have followed after him. History is full of wicked people, particularly leaders. And just like the previous 20 verses, this section stands up to any scrutiny, pardon, to the scrutiny of any history book out there and is proven to happen, to have happened just as Jesus said it would. Three centuries before Antiochus is even born. Why is it here? To comfort God's people. Through realism, spiritual realism. It is Jesus saying to Daniel, this is going to happen. But, but, there's an appointed end. Appointed time of the end. It will not last forever. Just as the temple and the high priest are mere shadows of the reality to come, so is Antiochus in relation to the opponents of God and his people who have not only come in history past, but will come in our future too. There are many biblical figures throughout the scriptures that foreshadow Jesus. Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Joshua. There are also figures who foreshadow the Antichrist. The ultimate enemy of God and his people is the Antichrist. And there are figures who foreshadow him like that initial peak. You get there and think this is probably it. And then you realize, nope, there's a peak even higher. You get to Antiochus. Back in chapter 8 is where we looked at him closely, I think. We get to him here in these verses and realize "Mm, he's just a forerunner. He's just foreshadowing that final man of sin who is yet to come. He's a shadow or a type of the ultimate Antichrist to come. Which brings us then to the final section, which transitions from this wicked ruler, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, to the final Antichrist and his appointed end, picking up in verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. These verses are talking about the end of time. It's been history thus far. It's future history, we might call it, from here on out. This is what will happen. How do we know it will happen? Because everything that Jesus said so far to Daniel would happen. Because every promise of his word is yes and amen and true. So these verses, 36 through 45, talking about the coming Antichrist in the end and the appointed end that he will face. Back up to Daniel chapter 7 with me again. This is a description of the little horn. Remember the little horn of chapter 7 and the small horn of chapter 8 were different individuals. The little horn was the, the final capital A Antichrist, we might call him, and Chapter 8, or was Antiochus Epiphanes there? And again here in this chapter, that's who's being highlighted. That's who's in the immediate future for the people of God. And the distinction between the two is one has already come and one is yet to come. Yet at the same time, as we said before, it's important to notice that they're, they're one in the same. They're both anti-Christ. They're of the same spirit. They're against God and his people. And everyone who lives today, whether world leader or not... If you are not for him, you're against him. There's no neutrality in this spiritual realm. How can they be one and the same if they're different? The Apostle John, children, it is the last hour, he writes, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. That was true during the Apostle John's day. It's true today. There is an Antichrist coming, and there are many Antichrists in our world today. And they all have these similar traits and identical goals of persecuting the people of God, of opposing the person of God, and eradicating the worship of God. It is important for us to come to grips with and be comforted by the reality that all of these little small horns that chapter 7 and 8 called them, these mere shadows, that they are just that insignificant 
in the face of mighty God. Oh, it feels significant here. We feel it when we read on the, on, on the pages of history and on the pages of the Scriptures. They do a great harm. But it's insignificant when we pull back the veil. And God allows us to see the reality that their end will come. Their doom is sure. History ebbs and history flows, but the word of the Lord stands forever. All of these, going back to the initial illustration, shorter peaks, shorter mountains, they're fleeting shadows at best. And in the end, God removes all lesser horns, all small horns, and he replaces the shadows and the types and the anti-types. Removes them all with absolute effortless care. I mean, ask the question, where is Antiochus now? Let me ask this question. Six weeks ago, who had ever heard of Antiochus? Where is Alexander the Great now? A few more of us had heard of him, but where is he now? How many days go by that you think about Alexander the Great? Someone really consumed with past history, maybe? Where are any of the opponents of God and his people in history? Dead. Gone. Their empires largely forgotten. They came for a time, and they disappeared. Look further at, at what these verses tell us about this final king, the final capital A Antichrist. Verse 36, he will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. That's repeated in 36 and 37. He will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. He shall prosper Verse 38, he will worship power and money. Verse 39, he will conquer the lands with a foreign god that he worships. This king, this coming Antichrist, will have untold power and unimaginable control more than any other ruler in all of history. You know what's helpful to note? That even though he has more power he will still suffer from the same sins as those who came before him. He'll be arrogant. He'll be full of pride and self-importance. He'll deny the one true and living God and will either worship idols or himself or both. These closing verses of chapter 11 tell us that one greater than Antiochus IV is coming to oppress God's people. One greater than Hitler is coming to oppress God's people. Greater is not meant in a good way. Not at all. The one coming, according to Daniel, according to the apostle writing to the church at Thessalonica, the one coming will be more evil. The one coming will be more vicious. The one coming will be more vindictive. The one coming will be more angry. The one coming will be more blasphemous. The one coming will be more murderous. The one coming will be more anti-Christ. More against him and his people. He will make Antiochus IV and all the antichrists of history look like choir boys in comparison. And his entire focus will be destroying the name of God and the people of God. Who is this king who is coming? This Antichrist. The magisterial reformers thought it was a picture of the Roman Empire. Others have said Muhammad. Others have claimed that it's the papacy and the Catholic Church. We're probably safe to assume that all of the shorter peaks that we see would be any one or any institution that is set against God and his people. But it's important that we recognize that these are all only a faint hint, if you will, of this king, not a good king, this Antichrist, the supreme Antichrist. 
All, this, all those who operate in the spirit of the Antichrist are child's play in comparison to this promised one that Jesus is warning Daniel about. Yet, in the same way each of the previous Antichrists have been removed from the stage, the final Antichrist will also be removed. Where is Antiochus now? Where is Alexander the Great now? Where are any of the opponents of God and his people in history? Dead. Gone. Where is God now? Ruling. Reigning. Where is Jesus? Seated on the throne. Where are the people of God? Church militant, here still fighting, church victorious, safe in heaven. The wicked succeed for a time, but ultimately... Their efforts are fruitless. As it was for them, the wicked in the past, so it will be for those to come who choose to ruthlessly oppose God and his people. He will stretch out his hand, verse 42, against other countries. The land of Egypt will not escape. Nothing can stop this final Antichrist. Nothing. He's just steamrolling everyone. Until, until the appointed time. Look at the last phrase of the chapter. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Again and again, this time, we serve the God who created time. Not only did he start time rolling, he'll be the one to wrap it up in the end. And it's going to end exactly the way he desires. No one can thwart his hand. No one can stay his arm. His will, his desire, his decrees will come to pass. Verse 16, he will stay for a time in the beautiful land. The enemies of God. God lets him for a time. Verse 24, but only for a time. Verse 27, the end is still to come at the appointed time. Verse 29, at the appointed time. Verse 35, it is still to come at the appointed time. God is in control of all things, especially time, though he operates outside of it, which ought to be helpful, even though we can't understand him being outside of time, it ought to at least help us understand that as the creator of time, he has complete control of it. He isn't... nothing nothing outside of himself is determining how he acts and how he responds. He is in control of everything. Including when he turns to his son who is seated on the throne at his right hand and says, go and gather in my people and bring them home. And Jesus will come again and Swat away the Antichrist like a fruit fly. So, what should our response be to this promised ultimate victory? I mean, it feels so anticlimactic when you read all of Daniel chapter 11 and all of the, the persecution and the opposition and the wars that are happening, all the suffering that the people of God will endure. And it ends with, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. That is staking a claim. The victory belongs to God. So how do, we re- how do we respond? In the same way that Paul writes to the Thessalonians when he talks about this man coming and Christ ruling and reigning victoriously. This is what he says. This is our response. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught and rest. In the midst of the conflicts and the wars and the difficulties around us, we rest in Christ, who is the victor. Jesus will have no trouble with the Antichrist. It's not going to be a closely contested battle in the end. It's not going to be a battle that swings one way and then the next. In fact, it's a battle that's already over. Christ defeated Satan on the cross. Death's sting has been removed 
for his people, for God's people. Sin has been paid for. As a result, we should live with absolute confidence in God and the power of the gospel. So what do we take away from this chapter with regard to God and the history of his world from this text? I've alluded to a few of the themes already, but in closing, let's give attention to them again. First, the Bible, God's word. 100% accurate and reliable, every word of it. We can trust it completely, even in seemingly obscure passages that we have found in Daniel. I mean, Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 21 of Daniel, I'll tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. How encouraging that it's God himself speaking to us, and so we can trust it. Daniel chapter 11 is... An example of prophecy predicted long before its time and it's brought to fulfillment by God. As I mentioned already, we can put any historical record of the ancient Middle Eastern world next to this text and and just watch as they measure up and match step for step throughout history. And the reason this is important is because there are prophecies in Daniel, like, like the very last section there in the coming Antichrist that are still to be fulfilled. So if it's been accurate and true so far, and it has, we can have absolute confidence when it speaks about things to come. Not just with regard to the Antichrist, but what about, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's not just a past promise to some people of old. That is God. To us as his people this morning, I will never leave you. Or what about this? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Really? That's not just during Isaiah's time. That's true for everyone who seeks their all in all in Jesus Christ, even this morning. The Bible is accurate and reliable as God's word for us. God is sovereign, sovereign over all of history, not just the good parts, not just the parts we like. There is nothing outside of his complete and absolute control. This is such good news for those of us who look at the world and we feel like that it's tattered around the edges and it's unraveling around every corner. Yes, evil exists. And yes, it often looks like with these temporal eyes that evil is winning. But when we see spiritually, when the curtain is pulled back and we see God revealing through his son to his servant Daniel and elsewhere in the scripture as well, we see evil doesn't last forever. It has an appointed end. Men and women live for only a few short years. God has everything under complete control. The plans of the world and worldly people always come to nothing in the end. Always. Men may cheat and plot and lie to get in power. It's surprising that so many are still surprised by this. There may not be a world leader in power who did not get there by trampling over a few people or making some backdoor or under-the-table deal. They plot to bring down their opposition, and yet what is the end of them all? Dead. Gone. From dust they came, and to dust they will return. What is the end of their plans? They're doomed, doomed to failure as their power wanes and another rises to take their place. The plans of one leader are quickly discarded and forgotten by the next. And finally, the centrality of God's people in the purpose of God. The importance or primacy of the church in the plans and purpose of God. We saw it by looking to earlier at what Jesus was using as the center. What lies between the north and the south here in this text. That beautiful land, the promised land. What will be the new heavens and the new earth. The place of God's people, right in the center. God's holy temple and the worship of his holy name, right in the center of his plan. 
The nations of the world may well fight with each other, and they do all unite under one banner to oppose the church of Christ, and they are merely, we may say, doing him a favor as they come together to make it easier for him to defeat them all. World history is moving to a planned conclusion, a guaranteed outcome. And the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world will reign on the throne forever and ever. And all who oppose him ultimately will be eternally condemned to hell to suffer forever and ever. So let's go back to our mountain that we're climbing. We get to the first peak and we realize it's Antiochus Epiphanes. And there are a few more peaks along the way. But we will eventually see that final peak, either from here or from there. For now, let's not forget the big picture. Let's not forget the tapestry of history that God is sovereign and he holds history in the palm of his hand. Let's not forget that he has delivered, is delivering, and will continue to to deliver his people from all opposition, from all persecution. Even the extreme persecution that's promised in the very end, God will keep his own. May he help us to rest in that. He's written to comfort us that we won't get all frazzled by this or that, but we'll rest in him who is sovereign over all things and who intends to do his people good. Let's fight to believe that, to trust him, and to live like it. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you will use it and the truths that it contains to affect us for eternity's sake. God, we pray that those who are far off from you that you would draw near to them, that you would save. For those who belong to you, God, will you work sanctification and maturation in their hearts and their lives. God, draw us all closer to the feet of the cross, that we might be increasingly enamored with our Lord, who died in our place, who was raised again for our justification, and who is our advocate in the heavens at your right hand, now pleading our case. God, we thank you that we can trust you and that we can rest in you and that there's no king like Christ. Our desire is to worship him. We trust that you'll help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.